G'day, humans. I'm on the road this week. Uh, if I sound a little muffled, it's because I'm sitting on a dusty bed in a cheap motel room in the nation's capital of Canberra. The Australian Capital Territory, the Bush Capital, they call it. And I know you probably think that my travel habits are somewhat more glamorous than that. You probably have images of me stepping off a private jet into a stretched limousine to whisk me to my Four Seasons suite. And yes, I do that sometimes. But this weekend, I'm in the nation's capital to bring you a special episode about whether or not it's possible to still have big ideas in politics. I'm speaking with the man who tried to drag Australia into the 21st century and failed about the fate of the truly radical and visionary attempt to reform the political system, to reform the economic system. Whether we should aspire to such things, and if we're going to, how best to pull them off. This is a conversation that is timely, that is interesting, that is pressing, even here in Canberra. And that is, yes, still, perhaps now more than ever, uncomfortable. It's a big show this week. As I mentioned, it's the man who's been called the best Prime Minister Australia never had. Uh, In 1993, for a bit of background... The government of the time, the ruling Labour Party, was fighting for its life. It was going into an election that would give it a fifth consecutive term with the Prime Minister, Paul Keating, going up against the only Liberal leader ever to have never had a cabinet-level political position. Uh, John Hewson was his name. He was an economics professor. Australia was emerging from the recession of the late 80s and early 90s, so it seemed a perfect time for an economics professor to take over the helm from a very long-serving Labor government. It was called the unlosable election for John Hewson, and yet he lost it. Labor won re-election and then didn't win another election for another 14 years. Hewson took to that election a radical set of economic reforms. He wanted to introduce a whole new tax, a goods and services tax, or a GST. He wanted to introduce a co-payment for accessing Australia's free universal healthcare system, Medicare. And this makes John Hewson, who is now a professor at the Australian National University, the perfect person to talk to about whether we can still do big things. You may not agree with the things that John Hewson was trying to do in the 1990s, but you can't deny It was an enormous undertaking to persuade the national electorate that they needed a new tax and major reforms to almost every aspect of the economic and political system. I put John Hewson on the spot in this interview about one of the most fateful interviews in Australian political history. Uh, Election analysts say that the turning point in the 1993 election campaign was an interview that John Hewson gave to Mike Willisey on A Current Affair, which is one of the longest-running primetime current affairs shows in Australia. It was the 3rd of March, 1993, and Willisey asked John Hewson about the GST that would be payable on a birthday cake. You will hear Hewson's lessons from that train wreck of an interview and his thoughts on why politics is so petty, so short-term, so small-bore. Do enjoy this aspirational vision of the politics of the future with the one and only John Houston. 
use that as a metaphor or as a as one example of the kind of dysfunction that mm. you were just talking about, the short termism of, of of politicians at mm. the moment. What's the cause of that? Well, it's just incredibly it's become an incredibly short term focused game. I remember when I lost in ninety three, uh, first day back in Parliament, Keating took me aside. Uh, apologised for all the to all terrible names he called me, which I laughed about. But uh, he said, no, I'm serious. He said, I could have lost you. I, I respect you and I didn't mean anything that I ever said about you. And then he said, but you have to understand, John, that to me politics is just a game and I will say or do whatever I have to to win. And I hadn't really focused on politics in those terms. I thought it was a pretty significant challenge, uh, business and, and so on, to, to provide good government. Do you think that Paul Keating meant that? Yeah, he meant it. If you look at... Some of the things he did when he was Prime Minister, they didn't get a lot of attention, but he, uh, in the 85 tax package that he and Hawke took to the to the Parliament, uh, it had a broad-based consumption tax, which Hawke took out uh, on a private deal he did with Bill Kelty, you know, the old famous motel room deal. And Keating said at the time he would die fighting for that. And, of course, then when it came to running an election where I was making a play for broad-based tax reform, he used everything he could to uh, to undermine the credibility of the proposal. Of course, but that is the rough and tumble and, of the And, uh, you know, when Hawke, for example, um, had actually championed a, a co-payment in healthcare to, uh, in the early 90s and um, getting won the support of the party to take over from Hawke by promising that he would not proceed with that. You know, so here's a sensible policy initiative, a very difficult one always to make uh, those sort of changes to a to an essential service, but Hawke was prepared to, as he did in, in, in a number of other areas, prepared to fight for it and argue through it, and um, Keating used it for polit- short-term political gain. So they were the early stages, uh, you know, you then you see an Abbott come along and, of course, he's just anti whoever's in government, whatever they're doing, <laughs> and disagree with everything. When I cooked over as leader of the opposition, I... I had a, a when concert was that? strategy. What, what year did you take over? Nineteen ninety. Yeah. I had a concert strategy then. Sure, when I disagreed with the government, I would disagree, but on substance, on the substance of the issue. But I also saw our role as being constructive. Try to be constructive. Get out in front. Call on the government to do things that would make it easy for them to do. And so, when there was a big debate about how to handle monetary policy, you know, we, we were easing the path to them raising interest rates, which. I said if they didn't raise them early, they'd have to raise them later and they'd put them up much higher and they'd do a lot of damage and, of course, that gave us a recession. But, you know, a lot of other things are calling on the government to commit to the first Gulf War, um, maintaining a relationship with China when Hawke wanted to close the embassy, but supporting, you know, the, the um, giving a visa status to those Chinese students and others who were in the country post Tiananmen Square. Um, and, you know... I give for zero tariff protection. Keating used to call me Captain Zero, but it made it very easy for him to cut, you know, te- textile, clothing, and footwear tariffs from in the hundreds of percent down to, you know, a low number. And they didn't get the resistance to that. So it was a more constructive process. And that's what was lost. That was really the point of his comment to me, you know, that uh, in the end, uh, if you want to win government, you, you know, he'll run a scare campaign, which he did. It's ironic that everyone focuses on the fact that the GST was supposed to be the basis of the scare campaign that cost us government, but it really wasn't. In our nightly polling, that started to disappear as an issue about 10 days out. The big issue was health, which was a genuine scare campaign, you know, the claim that went into about 13 key marginal seats at every level from letterbox drops to, to local media and so on, uh, door knocking and so on, was um, 
that if you uh, if mum took two kids to the doctor under Houston, it cost ninety two dollars. <laughs> there was nothing in the policy right. about costing anything and scaring people. It, but about, scared, it about was a direct scare, and, and it worked continued very, to be a, worked very well and a reliable. Now, scare campaigns have become a a feature of political campaigns, although. To a lot of people, I think they're wearing a bit thin because when you see that there's been an issue that's been left adrift for so long and the government's really struggling to deal with it, and, uh, you know, there are a number of those now, I guess you could almost go into any area of public policy and find where there's been policy drift. So, I mean, I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about how you do do big reform then, right? Like if we are mired in uh, the short-termism which is probably partly due to the Keating worldview that you just articulated that I won't necessarily <laughs> condone, but this sort of rough and tumble politics is everything mm. and we don't need to think about long-term policy mm. point of view and probably partly also caused by the, the speeding up of the news cycle and social mm. media. Oh, and, and technology, a whole and, lot of things have come over uh, that made yeah. that a lot, lot easier. To, it's a lot easier to run a scare campaign on Twitter and social media and uh, Mm. Facebook and so on now and th- than it ever was. And I can understand a certain level of cautiousness uh, yeah. now amongst politicians not not wanting to, to embark on big ventures. But well, th- yet right. big I ventures mean, are exactly what, what we need to well, get out I, of the uh, many problems Fight we Back was a broad-based reform agenda, not just in tax, but in every area of public policy. This was your big economic, big economic policy. Big economic social policy in the early 90s. And um, when I lost, it immediately became what everyone referred to as a small target strategy. You know, Houston had been a big target and he'd lost. So don't, um, don't, um, don't be well, a big I target. Mean, it Say it as reminds me possible. a little bit of the last election here, but yeah. with the parties flipped in, in that mm. the Labor Party went to the last election with a very ambitious set of economic reforms. And the, the government, the Conservative government, was able to do very, very little apart from just raise question marks about uh, the credibility of those reforms and was able to get in. So how do, how do you twist the dial so that it's ambitious enough to be worth doing but not so ambitious uh, that you it's can't a win very, elections? It's a very good question, and we haven't had a very good history over the last couple of decades of any of this uh, from which you could sort of draw authoritative lessons because uh, different strategies have been run. I mean, Howard won succession of elections by not promising to do too much at all or capitalising on issues uh, like uh, vote people and so on as they arose. Um, at, um, Although he did one big thing early on, which he did, is he what did you did introduce to do. the GST, and, but the deal he did for that gave away the bulk of the essence of the, the reform. But, um, in what, you in know, what and it nearly, it, it nearly cost him, I think Beasley almost beat him in the next election. So he, um, yeah, but that, I think Beasley added, won, won the popular vote in uh, I think he did. You know, in that that added to the sense Lost that the you can't take a big, big policy to an election. Why um, do you say that he, he, he reformed the GST out of its purpose, well, uh, its main purpose? There are a number of reasons. I've written quite a lot about this over the years, but, I mean, one reason was to get the deal done through the parliament. He left a lot out from the tax base. And uh, so now what the GST is levied on is not growing, the spending is not growing as fast as what is not levied on. So it's not the growth tax that they claimed it would be. And of course, the states haven't benefited the way they thought they would. This is mainly because uh, the the more left wing parties didn't want it to be levied on things well, like fresh they, food. Well, you know, and books he, and... he just did the deal to to get it through. And the other thing, which was a clever political move, in saying that in committing that he would give all the revenue to the states, but that just guaranteed an annual shit fight about the distribution of that, <laughs> of that revenue. You know, so it's it's been. Um, and you've had some extreme examples of of dissatisfaction with that distribution. The West being a classic example. 
I mean, when their revenues were down from, from mining royalties, of course, they complained a lot about the distribu- distribution of GST. I uh, don't hear them complaining so much these days and they don't <laughs> want to give back the special assistance they got. So, I mean, it's um, it's not a stable structure either. So it, it's it's uh, its structure in terms of its implementation, what it covers, um, was lost to some extent. The whole idea of a broad-based consumption tax was to move away from reliance on income taxes uh, and um, you know broaden the tax base to include expenditure as a much broader broader tax base. And um, you know the tax system now just is is one of those classic areas which is still way. It's got so many weaknesses and so many inefficiencies. It's very complicated, increasingly complicated, uh, not very efficient, very inequitable in its impact. And you're seeing that when there are tax changes and the current tax package that's just been released in response to or accelerated in response to COVID puts the bulk of the benefits to the high income earners at the surprise, expense of those surprise. who really need the money and so those who would really spend the money. Let's know, think so. about these reforms then. So you come, you uh, take control of the opposition party in Australia. You go, we're going to have a big suite of economic reforms called Fight Back. Uh, that that doesn't work. Uh, John Howard wins uh, the subsequent election after that. So so then thinking, I'm just trying to get a handle on big re- on how big reforms have done in in Australia, so we can talk about how to do them. Uh, so Howard comes along with uh, the GST. He wins that uh, that election, and I suppose gun law reform would be another major domestic uh, mm-hmm. policy success. And then what else happens between then and now that's a big uh, a big reform. I mean, there's the climate. There's the there's Labor's carbon. You know, so tax. we had we had attempts to you know do something substantive on climate. I mean, I think back to the policy we took in '93, which was a 20 percent cut in emissions by the year 2000 off a 1990 base. Now, if we'd done that each decade since, we'd be at less than half our parrot level of commitments already. What? So we sort of did ourselves a lot of gratuitous harm through that political point scoring process. What's happened to conservatism? Well, you know, I, I've said all along in my political career I don't like labels. I mean, I don't think anyone is consistently in politics these days anyway, consistently conservative or left or right or, you know, or, or any of the other labels that the, the, the progressive and, and so on. I, I mean, mean, I guess I'm using it in the, in the, the purest possible sense of the word in I mean, that uh, well, in, to, in being a, a sort of instinctive desire to do the minimum amount that you, to, to find the minimum effective dose to address the problems that we've got whilst retaining the institutions that have made us prosperous and, yeah, and if, free. If you look at the, the um, what what defines a liberal or national party member today? They would say that they believe in the supremacy of the individual. They believe in um, small government. They believe in market based processes where possible, um, and um, minimum government regulations. On now, if you apply that sort of thinking to the issue of climate, you would put a price on carbon and get out of the way and let the market essentially drive that adjustment process. There would be a need to do more, but that would be the basis on which you could move. And the world is now coming to that view. I mean, Canada's just put a price on carbon. The Chinese have put a price on carbon. You know, it's happening. Uh, but um, and th- that would have made a big difference. So that is a conservative position by their own definition, which they have just eschewed. And in the process, they've gone the other way. They've become quite socialist uh, with uh, big stick policies against the power authorities and regulatory uh, changes to achieve particular ends, which is just nothing to do with their... So, and they'd still claim to be conservative. But um, 
So the nature of the response to policies has shifted around and so I say labels don't mean much. It's better to look at what they actually do, not so much even to listen to what they actually say, but look at what they actually do do, what they do deliver. And, um, you know, we've ended up with a position where we are now globally. We were a leader in the Kyoto process. We punched above our weight. We got a very attractive deal for Australia. Um, and was from that, 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 that you know, late, late only, 80s position. Was that Paul Keating only believing in, in politics? No, that was really just had been negotiated by um, a number of players over the time. Both sides of politics had, had, had been part of this. It was process. his government though, right? Hmm? It was it was the Keating government. It was, it was the whole Keating government. I think I'm not sure when it actually started. I can't quite remember. I think now. it was nine. I think ninety two. They uh, signed it. So yeah, it was never it ratified in Australia. But yeah, you know, we the point was we had we were a leader, and we now by any any independent assessment we are the, one of the most conspicuous laggards. We have done so much less than we should have done, given our, our emissions domestically and our responsibility for. The global emissions, is, as we are the largest or second largest, I should say, export of fossil fuels in the world. If you look at the transition, it's a sensible, you know, let's get to a low carbon world by mid-century. And you've got three decades. This decade's the crucial one. This is where you have to do all the heavy lifting. I mean, did I, I, read, a, I read a stat, John, that since Kyoto, so since the early 90s, more than half of the world's total carbon emissions have been emitted. So it's just, it's crazy. It's like since we've known that yeah. this was a problem that we need to be addressing, we've continued to double the scale of the problem. There's a credible body of opinion that says you should be actually aiming for net negative yeah. by 2050. And, and, you know, a country like Australia can actually do that. The agricultural sector can be net negative by simply very, very simple changes in farming techniques, regenerative agriculture, as it's called. You can measure the improvement that that will give you in the carbon content of the soil. And the advantage of that to a farmer is that that's a carbon credit for the sequestration of the carbon. And, uh, you know, that's another income source, which uh, gives them a long-term sustainable position. At the same time, you've got the National Party, who don't understand their constituents, saying, well, um, you know, if there is a commitment by the government to net zero by 2050, we should exclude agriculture. It's about as dumb as you can imagine. Mm. But uh, they don't get it. And and yet the regional benefits of regenerative agriculture are phenomenal. So when you, say, when you say they don't get it and they don't have a policy to, to deliver it, the uh, the conspiracy theorist or the disenchanted voter or the person who's susceptible to uh, believing crank theories on Facebook looks at all this and goes... It's Murdoch, it's maybe Bill Gates, it's George Soros, it's something or other. There has to be a reason why these supposedly, intel- apparently intelligent people are refusing. Are they in the? Are they in bed with big mining companies? Are they taking bribes? Like what's the non-conspiracy theory explanation from you as to why they're so deaf about addressing things that even their constituents would want them to? There are a lot of elements. I mean, they are afraid of change. Your your concept of conservative means, in one sense, uh, afraid of change, minimum change, do as little as possible to get by. Uh, secondly, they, the, the, the science is overwhelming. I mean, not nearly all climate scientists these days agree on the urgency and magnitude of the problem, but they, they set that aside. And it's interesting, I notice, in the pandemic, they're saying, oh, we rely on the medical science. 
<laughs> which is so rudimentary and, and, you know, poorly peer assessed and so on compared to the enormous volume of scientific evidence on climate. Well, we so do have a few, a few Australian what... parliamentarians who don't rely on the medical science uh, in the yeah. pandemic either. So <laughs> yeah. at least they're consistent. Yeah, but, uh, you know, and, and uh, I think that there's concern about change. There's, there is undoubtedly a very powerful fossil fuel lobby, which uh, has them, you know, channeling a whole lot of business into those sectors, which... Uh, are either their mates or their funders in term, in a political sense. Uh, and um, I think that the idea of planning for a transition over the next two or three decades, which you should do, uh, and, and it's not that hard to do, and other parts of the world are doing it, they just find that all oh, too risky, too disruptive, too might impact on their short-term political position. But, I mean, if you go to any of the sectors that would be seriously affected, like the coal mining industry or for example, where the major miners now, Rio and, and uh, BHP is two, two large uh, world exporters of, of thermal coal, have both said they're getting out of it. They don't see any long-term future in it. They recognise that that means that in coal mining communities there will need to be a transition for the workers, for the communities, whether it's retraining, whether it's relocation, whether it's retrenchment, whatever, that it can be planned, it should be planned. Um, no, but the, the way the process works, these things are going to happen. I mean, coal-fired power stations are going to close. Mm. We had um, uh, Hazelwood close in Victoria. It was about 11% of, of uh, Victorian power. Um, forget the number of workers. It's for six or 700 workers. Directly, then a whole you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more in the community. Just no transition strategy at all, just closed. They were left high and dry. The community of the Latrobe Valley was left high and dry. Same as Northern when it was closed, the Northern Power Station near uh, Port Augusta, the same thing, no planning, no transition. You would think to yourself, you know, as a politician, I'm going to be held accountable for that. So I should should make a big effort to bring the community in to consult, to, to negotiate a transition strategy, get everyone to do their bit and pay, pay their part. And um, I don't need to do that. Very I can just you know? blame the Greens and, and say yeah, that yeah, uh, if it was up to us, we'd be building coal-fired power plants all over the country. And, you know, and there's this silly debate on the other side that you're, you're pointing to, that they want to build coal-fired power stations, say, in North Queensland, where there is no net demand for power uh, in North Queensland, where there isn't a, a significant inve international investment bank that would fund it. There isn't a, an insurer, a global insurer now, that would insure it. And by the way, solar is so much cheaper than, you know, the new coal-fired, supercritical, super-efficient, whatever. And I hear North Queensland is quite sunny. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just <laughs> – and they, the resources are there to make the transition. And, you know, and people in the industry know that. They just want a bit of leadership. And I would think that governments, you talk about longer-term strategic thinking, that's strategic thinking you've got to be able to do. You've got to be able to plan. I mean, you look at look what's happened with electric vehicles. The government says, oh, we have a strategy. And in, in the last election, um, Shorten identified specific. You know, I expect that there'll be 50% uh, electric vehicles registered in 2030, this sort of thing. And, and, and Morrison immediately says, oh, no, no, he's going to steal your weekend. You know, he's going to take you. You won't be able to tow your boat. You yes, know? for people who don't remember this, the, the, before <laughs> you know? the last Australian election, there was a, a scare campaign by the government against the Labor Party saying that you're not going to be allowed to have a four-wheel drive anymore That's if right. Labor wins because they're going to they're going to force you to you're be driving a tiny little Prius or something. Stop, yeah, and, and look, it's... It, 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 what do you make? What so do you make of, of, of Labor, in that too. John? What, what do you make of the, the the state of the left? Well, you don't like labels, so let's not call them the left. Just the Labor Party. Well, I think 
look, for most of these public policy issues, there are left or right dimensions that you would consider a left or right. I mean, the, some of the social disruption requires you to think about um, the consequences of the p- policy change. I'll give you a specific example, which nobody focused on. In the early 90s, when we were introducing the GST, calling for 15% GST, very big compensation package by way of tax cuts and other things to to compensate you know, just about everybody. Um, but in there, I saw a unique opportunity to actually do more, to take a social policy progressive position on pensions. And as I looked at it at the time, you know, a pensioner going into residential aged care was left with about 20 bucks a week. And that meant that was their SIGs and their grog and their kids, grandkids' presents and so on. <laughs> you know, they have a lot of money. And the, the access to health insurance was very limited. Most of them didn't have it and so on. So I said, okay, let's have a compensation for the pensioner community, which is that we will double their pension, not just 15%. We'll double the pension and we'll give them free access to private health insurance and a, and a number of other benefits, which was an overwhelming social policy shift at the same time in the context of, okay, introducing a broad-based consumption tax. So they were going to be way in front. And, um, you know, the, so you could say that the progressive element of that was very significant and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was lost in the fight about the, the, the tax itself. And now we have a situation where the government is finally going to increase the unemployment benefit, the, what used to be called New Start, now is called Job Seeker. Um, change the name, you know, change the, <laughs> the criticism <laughs> is the hope. But uh, they're only going to increase that by about $3.47 a day. Um, so it's $43.47 or 57 a day. Uh, and, you know, recognising that that is way below the poverty line and yet these people are going to, the prospect of coming out of this COVID recession with a much higher level of unemployment and a much higher level of underemployment, uh, you know, the worst time to actually be being so so, so measly, and uh, that's what they do. And so the, an opportunity to do a serious piece of progressive uh, policy development has been lost, and, um, you know, yet there was I'm, overwhelming I'm ask, support for change. I'm asking you about how much vision there is on the Labor side because, mm. as we mentioned earlier, you know, they went to the last election uh, with some big economic reforms which uh, had which were quite complicated, were too complicated for my aunt to understand and therefore I knew Shorten was going to lose the election a week beforehand because people couldn't quite understand what imputation dividends meant and how the negative gearing changes might affect them and, and so on. Um, do you see vision? Do you see a, a do you see vision on the left? Well, you can say some of that was visionary, or some of it was just. I mean, there's no doubt if you were doing broad-based tax reform, that is, you're looking at all the weaknesses of the existing system and trying to fix them or restructure the system so that it gave you a better outcome, a simpler outcome, a more a fairer outcome, a more efficient outcome. Then those sort of tax changes would have been part of that, but you would have been part of a much bigger package, and, right? You know, and a lot more happening. To pick just one or two out and then not explain them was pretty high-risk strategy. And also to be a person who's bad at explaining things, as, well, as I, I didn't think Well, I mean, was. Didn't, didn't really try to explain, uh, took it for granted that they'd get away. And look, they left themselves vulnerable, not just to the accusation about, you know, the the um, franking credits and people had some difficulty understanding it, although the people who got them did seem to understand quite well <laughs> what they were. What they uh, but, were going to lose. But, but not trying to explain that allowed them the government to say, well, it's really, you know, a wealth tax. 
you know it was a complicated thing to try to explain and i don't think that i mean my fear is that the takeaway from the last election will be the same as the takeaway oh, from okay. the election that you lost which is don't try to do things that are too ambitious because they're too hard to to get done we should rem- we should make sure that we're a small bore uh as possible when in fact maybe the problem with the last election was I mean, I was presenting the uh, the breakfast show on telly on the weekends uh, on during the election, and uh, remember Bob Hawke died a week before the election, and Bill Shorten came on TV. Now, Bob Hawke is Bill Shorten's mentor, right? Mm. I mean, the lion of the Labor Party, oh, the, right. the great hero, and Shorten comes on and goes. Well, it's a very sad day, and uh, I could have kept on going with my usual schedule to uh, Perth, but I decided to uh, not cancel it because, uh, you know, I could be doing a big display and showing everybody how good I am, but I'm just more fair dinkum than that. And I thought he's going to lose. If he can't make me feel emotional about Bob Hawke's death, if he seems like he's a politician, still in politician mode and not very good politician mode, at a moment when he is supposed to be lionising the most important person in his party, then he's not going to seal. Because a big reform is about trust. Like people have to trust you as a human being that you're not going to screw them if it's complicated. And I don't trust that man (laughs) just because his cover is is bad. If you take Hawke and reverse the position, if it was Hawke in that position, he may well have cried. He may well he would have, have. He may have well said, "You, you know, anyone who thinks they're going to campaign today is a bum." Mm. You know this sort of thing, as he did in other occasions. And uh, he was had much greater empathy with with the issue and with people. Uh, but I think the the big thing that stood out through Shorten's leadership was that he was never net positive in his personal rating in the polls. And people downplayed that because the Labor Party was always in front in the polls, but he wasn't. And uh, so you go back to the issue of trust. They only had to create enough uncertainty about him uh, in certain in certain parts of the country, particularly Queensland, for example, which I think the the Palmer advertising did a lot of damage <laughs> to Chawton, not so much to the government. Um, the, that um, you know he that that was the main factor was his unpopularity that uh, that was a defining factor. And then of course over above that there were a number of policy elements which. People quite often just don't bother to try and understand this figure, you know, the government's there to do a job and they expect they'll do it sort of thing. They'll deal with the big issues as best they can. I can't because I'm too small and I'm insignificant. Uh, and, um, you know, so he lost the second layer then. It was causing confusion, having a lot of people saying, I don't understand it or it's a wealth tax or it's, you know, and the old fear of a, a socialist agenda based on wealth taxes and so on became quite real. And that's um, a very difficult, um, a difficult set of circumstances to turn around. But we're at the stage now, you know, where a lot of the issues are, there is an imperative to deal with them. You can't imagine that you could let the aged care issue drift any further. But to turn it around is going to cost tens of billions of dollars. And the government doesn't have that. They've just spent, you know, they're, they're boasting all the time about how well they've done in, in terms of the, the management of the virus and the economic management of the the recession and the recovery from the recession. But if you look at why, well, we closed our global borders so we isolate ourselves. We have a bit of disruption domestically, but nothing compared to the rest of the world and raises the question as to whether how quickly we'll be able to open those international borders. But the second the second thing is we spent 15 17% of GDP. If you can't get a good growth number <laughs> off a low base spending that much money, there's something wrong with you. Okay, so we've had two good quarters of growth. We haven't recovered the pre-COVID level. 
and we're still 10% or more below where we would have been because we would have continued to grow um, rather than shrink into the recession. So we'll never recover that ground unless we have several years of growing above trend. So you can paint a good picture, but the transition's still to be made. You take the 17% out <laughs> of the economy, and so the government's not there funding everything. And, um, you know, and the, a lot of those businesses that were supported were marginal before pre the COVID, so they'll... Right, but you couldn't do anything else, could no, you? No, no, they, they had to do it. It seems a bit petty to say, well, if you took out what the government's no, doing, the economy would be doing What they've poorly. lost, though, I mean, is... The fact is the government did do that and the government's not doing as badly to, as... To go to your point, though, having recognised the significance of that and having to do that and doing what everybody thought they had to do, you can debate more or less about particular measures and certainly some sectors got left out and that sort of thing, but the key point is... Here's a unique opportunity. If you really want to now launch a reform agenda, let's talk about a sustainable recovery out of this. Let's address the structural weaknesses of the economy and uh, the social structural weaknesses and see whether we can fix them and create a basis on which we can sustainably recover. Climate offers a great way to do that. You know, hundreds of thousands of jobs, billions of dollars in investment, uh, new businesses everywhere, this sort of thing. But in any area of public policy, that's largely true. Do the tax system. You know, which you haven't been able to do. Fix childcare, fix aged care. Fix, you know, these are issues that, in themselves, okay, they're difficult. Uh, you know, you have you are going to have to explain hard and, and work hard, but um, that's a unique opportunity to do that, and that's what's been lost. I was reminded the other day by a head of a ex secretary, one of the he's been ex head of secretary of two major government departments in his time. And he said back in the seventies, he had a major issue with with uh, Doug Anthony, who was his minister. And it was, a, it was a, related to the oil price and a very, very difficult, controversial issue. And he went in, he said he didn't know what he was going to say to Anthony, you know. And Anthony said to him, look, your job is to get the policy right. Just don't worry about anything, just get it right. And my job's then to explain it and sell it. Mm. I haven't heard that happen in, for decades in this country. Mm. No, it doesn't. They don't think that way anymore. And uh, so it wasn't about dealing with the issue. It wasn't about governing. It wasn't about solving problems. It was about, it was about uh, today, it's about, you know, we can't do that. It might cost me a vote here or a vote there or I might offend this person that's funded or this industry that's funded our election campaign. Or, and, you know, part of what's got to be done is to get rid of all that funding, you know, to actually clean up the funding of politics and uh, the influence of lobbyists and uh, and as, about I mean, truth in advertising, things <laughs> like that. You know? As often as not, it's, it's, it's the party trying to hold together its own flanks quite apart from parliamentarians caring about. Yeah, but that gets exaggerated. I mean, Turnbull's used the argument, Morrison used the argument, oh, I've got a rump that I have to deal with. Yep. But you didn't deal with them. You let them run. You let, you let the horses out. I mean, it takes a while to get them back in. They won't come back. I put that question directly to Malcolm Turnbull yeah. on on the air uh, yeah. where I said, you know, I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but yeah. let's go back to the beginning of your prime ministership and let's imagine that you come in and you go, all right, guys, on the right wing of the Liberal Party and the Conservatives and the National Party. I know that I told you guys that I wouldn't move on same-sex marriage and I know that I told you that I wouldn't do anything on climate uh, until after an election, but I'm sorry I lied. Uh, We're going to go big and you can either come with me or you can topple the government. What do you think happens? And he still, to this day, says they would have rolled me. What's your sense? Do you believe that that the right wing backbenchers would detonate the government 
no, look, there is an element in, in whoever's in government, I've found that there are always a group of backbenchers who prefer to be in, uh, in, in opposition because in government they don't have much, much influence. But uh, there's a very small crew. And, um, you know, there were some in the Fraser years which I used to talk to as a as chief of staff, that sort of thing. Um, but, um, no, basically you have to call them out. You have to insist on the rules. I mean, you, fish does rot from the head. You do have to set the standards and you do have to enforce the standards. And if they're not going to be enforced, <laughs> you know, you've got to call people out. But if you let them go, if you, you're allowing people like Christensen and others to go to a part of your meeting and come out and call a press conference and say, oh, I just rolled the government. I mean, I don't think you've got anyone to blame for that but yourself. What do you do? You call them out. And you make it difficult for them within the party structure you isolate them in the party room and you make it difficult. I mean, they're, they're, um, they may be able to keep their electoral conference uh, support. It doesn't always work. I mean, Kelly couldn't. The only reason Craig Kelly persisted was that both Malcolm and, and, and Turnbull, so Malcolm and, uh, and Morrison inter- intervened and, and ensured his pre-selection. <laughs> and look at, the, look at the problem they created. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my point, really. I wonder if it's possible anymore to keep all of the to herd the cats the way that it was in your day? I think it does come down to management structures and, um, and, and enforcing rules and discipline. But, you know, when I took over in, in 1990, coming out of the Howard Peacock era, the only reason I stood, I'd only ever wanted to be treasurer, I never wanted to be leader. And the only reason I stood was just to say, oh, God, you know, Peacock has lost and now it's now going to run again. We can't go around this mulberry bush one more time. So I'll stand. And so in my first speech to the party room, speech to the party room, I said, we have three weaknesses. One is disunity. We have disunity within the Liberal Party, within the National Party and between the coalition partners. The second weakness is we have no policy credibility. You know, what do we stand for? And Howard's tax package didn't add up in 1987. He double counted the revenue. Peak, I couldn't remember the health policy in 1990. We have no credibility. We have to build policy credibility. And the third weakness is we're not a, a competent on-the-ground campaigning force like the Labor Party is. Uh, we have an anachronistic mid-1940s structure for the party. And that's, that's, they were the three things. And I said publicly, they will, we, we'll, we'll, I'll work flat out over the three years to achieve the outcomes, to, to improve all three of those. My suspicion is it'll take me six years, not three, but we'll give it our best shot in three. And we fixed two. We did, never did actually fix the campaigning capacity of the party, but um, um, we did fix the first two. We certainly got rid of disunity and we certainly had policy credibility. Some people would say too much. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, but that's, you had to get everyone to sign off on the basic strategy at the beginning and then all, everyone was given a part. Every single people person had a role in policy development, in, in, in the development and in the, in the marketing of the policy. Everybody. They had assigned roles. And, um, you know, the ones that might cause you trouble, uh, I found them perhaps pretty useful in defence, you know, where they might spend some time in the US uh, <laughs> or, or the UN <laughs> talking to the Pentagon, you know. You yes, can manage them, it. You get just them have out to, of the country. You just have to manage it. Uh, for, to listeners who may not remember how uh, your uh, leadership of the, of the opposition party, 
and how close you came to being prime minister they they won't remember the birthday cake interview uh that that political analysts now now identify as the point at, at which uh you you lost the unlosable uh election what are yeah. your what are your well, recollections the answer, the answer was actually correct and and the the reason we i gave the answer was that we had a strategy to answer all questions and, okay, the problem was that the tax system was very complicated at the time. Sales tax, wholesale sales tax had multiple rates and multiple layers of incidence. So depending on what you were replacing with a 15% GST, the price may go up or down. And that was the point. Um, in, so my answer was technically correct, uh, politically not very clever. <laughs> and it was, it was used against me. Easy to say, look, he doesn't understand, he can't explain it. I still get it all the time, he can't explain it. But, um, you know, I was making the point was that transition from a multiple rate, multiple incidence tax system to one single rate was not a simple answer. And I could have just said it'll go down or it'll go up. Uh, and the chances were, of course, he'd have a different version of the cake where he'd say it didn't go. And they, this came out of the background of people like, Peacock and Howard not knowing how much a carton of milk was or a loaf of bread or, you know, so you needed to have the answers. Now, strategy was we had very detailed work done on what, what, what the impacts were. So politically not very clever. The truth really didn't count for much. <laughs> well, and, an alternative way of putting the truth is to say, look, I'm not going to take the debate on a particular yeah. question because we can argue specifics until the cows come home. But, the, you know, obviously he's, he wants to. That's what his, I should have done. Yeah. I should have just taken the broad answer and not answered the specific question. Oh, can I just ask you a simple question as an example of this? If I buy a birthday cake from a cake shop and, and GST is in place, do I pay more or less for that birthday cake? Well, it will depend whether cakes today in that shop are subject to sales tax or they're not, firstly, and they may have a sales tax on them. Let's assume that they don't have a sales tax on them and then that that birthday cake is going to be sales tax free. Then, of course, you wouldn't pay. It would be exempt. It would, so there would be no GST on it under our system. If it was a, one with a sales tax today, it would attract the GST. And then the difference would be the difference between the two taxes, whatever the sales tax rate is on birthday cakes, how it's decorated, because there'll be sales tax perhaps on some of the decorations as well. And then, of course, the price, the price will reflect that accordingly. But the key point is that uh, the, the average Australian will have more money in their pocket. Now, but just on the, just on the birthday cake, I'll just try to pick a simple example. You tell us in what you've published that the cost of cake goes down. Hmm. The cost of confectionery goes up. That's right. And there's icing and maybe ice cream. And then there's candles on top of it. That's right. Now, that's the difficult. That's what I'm addressing in, in the question. To, to give you an accurate answer, I need to know exactly what type of cake to, to give a detailed answer. I mean, if it's just a cake from a cake shop that is not presently subject to sales yeah, tax, okay. it will not attract the GST. But isn't, isn't but that... But if it is a cake shop, it's cake from a shop that has sales tax and it's decorated and candles, as you say, that attract sales tax, then, of course, we scrap the sales tax yeah. before the GST okay, but is imposed. It's just an example. Hmm. If the answer to a birthday cake is so complex, you do have a problem with the overall GST. Have you read Obama's uh, biography, the first part of his no. new, not the old one? Um, it's worth a read because you were just reminding me of it in the sense that he talks about uh, the moment at which he went on Meet the Press and uh, he had decided privately that he was going to run for president. Yeah. And uh, he had previously been saying that he wasn't running. Uh, and uh, he, they were in the car on the way to NBC studios 
and uh, Axelrod and his other advisors were saying, well, okay, you're going to get asked, are you running? Uh, and so how do we say this? They argued back and forth 15 minutes about how do you say that he's not without actually admitting that he's not because you don't want to say yes, but you also have to say no in such a way that it doesn't make it subsequently seem like you are lying or being disingenuous when you do throw your hat in the ring. And after a while, Obama looks out the window of the car and then he turns to him and he goes, why don't we just tell the truth? Yeah. And he says, so then he gives the answer. He says, previously I've said that I wasn't. I'm now rethinking that. I'm not saying that I am, but it's no longer the no that it used to be. Mm. And, of course, that makes headlines, but it's, it's ama- it was amazing to me reading that, yeah. how novel it might be in politics yeah. to just say well, what is yeah, in your yeah. head. And, look, ever since then, the the concept of truth in politics has taken a hell of a beating, you know, and uh, we can go as far as Trump and fake news and all that. But uh, And, you know, governments do use... They do spin. They do put the favourable gloss on just about anything. But the bottom line of that is you can understand that behaviour, but if it means you don't solve a problem, you just kick it down the road, it's only a short-term benefit. And this is what is wrong with politics. It's run for the expedience, political expediency, what they perceive to be a short-term benefit of taking a particular position and not doing not doing what any rational person would say, well, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you tell the truth? Why don't you just admit you don't know? Why don't you admit that you're going to do something? You know, and that, that's, uh, you know, nobody does it anymore. Nobody actually lays themselves bare, which I think is a problem. I'll let you get out of here, but yeah. uh, my, my kids are three years old. They're twins. When they're my age, is Australia going to be a better place? Is the world going to be a better place or a, a worse place to live in? I think this decade of the 2020s is the defining decade myself. It's one of the reasons why some of us push so hard to try and get sensible government, uh, longer term, more strategic thinking and focused government, solving problems, not worrying about you know whether or not you should win the election. My first engagement with politics in the early in the middle seventies, when I came out of the Reserve Bank on secondment to the Treasurer's Office, so I did so on the firm belief that that good evidence-based policy would be good government and good politics with a relatively short lag. Uh, today, you'd have to say that short-term politics is stopping any possibility of good government. Great to talk to you, John. Thanks as always. Thanks very much. Thank you.